Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mary Ashen. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm here today with Ken Ackerman, an attorney and writer based in Washington, D.C. Ken's published books include Boss Tweed, The Corrupt Paul Who Conceived the Soul of Modern New York, and Ken's most recent one, Trotsky in New York, 1917, A Radical on the Eve of Revolution. Ken has authored a feature story titled How an Immigrant Saloon of 1840s, New York, Gave Birth to B'nai B'rith for our upcoming Winter 2018 magazine issue. The piece is a deeply researched and detailed exploration of B'nai B'rith's founding in New York in the mid-19th century. Ken, thank you for being here today on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So Benabrith is now observing its 175th anniversary. We're founded in New York in 1843. Uh, and um, your article really kind of sets the, uh, the stage uh, for the founding of that organization, what New York was like at that time, where the Jews lived at that time, the German Jews in particular, mm-hmm. and um, the start that we got, the launch that we got uh, at that time. So let's, let's begin with... Um, the question, what was New York like in 1843? Well, Dan, thank, thanks for that. Um, New York was, was a very different place than, than today. It looked very different. It was, it was smaller. Um, New York in 1843 was mostly located at the southern end of Manhattan Island. Um, it had reached above City Hall Park. It was marching up toward um, cent- what would become Central Park, but it still had a long way to go. It had about, about um, four or 500,000 people. It was a city that was, in 1843, undergoing a major era of change. Um, at the beginning of the 1800s, New York had about, about 150,000 people. During the next 60 years till the Civil War, the city would more than quadruple in size. It would, by the time of the Civil War, there would be more than 800,000 people living there. Um, during this time, waves of immigrants would come into the city. Um, the city would have a flavor because of the large immigrant communities that, that's different than today. There'd be large parts of New York where they didn't speak English. Um, large parts where um, the the major language was German, um, or 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 Yiddish, um, or or other European languages, because people were literally fresh off the boat. Um, the biggest group of people, business, biggest ethnic group, were the Irish, um, who were coming in in large numbers. Germans were after that. Um, the city looked very different. Um, there were no skyscrapers. Um, the tallest buildings were maybe three or four um, stories tall. Um, a lot of the areas where immigrants lived were, they, they, if you saw them today, you would look at them and think they were shanty towns. People came in, they didn't have money, they didn't, couldn't buy building material, so they would start off just building huts and tents. Over time, they would, as they got money, they would buy, build brick buildings. Um, the area where most of um, the German and Jewish immigrants lived, um, an area called Klein Deutschland, that's what they called it back then, the, the German word. Um, it was um, on a part of New York that was then the, the northern fringe of the city, what today we would consider the, the upper part of the Lower East Side. Um, there were, there, up until the early 1800s, the southern part of that neighborhood was a lake. I mean, there was literally a, a lake called the the Collect in the lower and just north of, of what's now City Hall Park. And during the late um, 
during the 1700s, it was a very nice place. I mean, it was where people would go for picnics, and, and it was a very pretty um, place. Um, but towards the later part of the, 18, of the 1700s, um, it was the place where people would build breweries and butcher shops and packing plants, and it became very polluted, very smelly, and over time it was filled in with landfill. That spot that was the landfill um, became the Five Points, um, the very notorious slum um, where the very poorest people were went to live. Um, it was mostly an Irish area when the when the when the Irish um, po very poor Irish first um, came into the country. Klein Deutschland was just a few blocks to the north of that. We know we call it. The, call it the Lower East Side, yes. but it's it, not quite the Lower East Side yes. that we think of, let's say, when, when my parents immigrated to this country mm -hmm. uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, mm -hmm. that we associate with, with the Ashkenazi Eastern right. European community, correct? Yes. yes. Um, it's um, important to separate two, two stages in Jewish, uh, Jewish immigration. Starting in 1880, after the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in St. Petersburg, that's when the huge waves of Eastern European Jews would come into New York and into America in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s. Um, before then, the number of Jews was, was much fewer. By 1843, 1850, there were maybe 10 or 15,000 Jewish people total in New York. That was still a big increase from um, 50 years earlier when there were only a few hundred. But still, the, the very big waves didn't come later. But the, and, original, the original arrivals were Sephardic, were they not? The original, Jewish arrivals. Yes, the original arrivals in New York were Sephardic. In fact, the first Jews came in the 1600s. They, there was a group that had been living in Brazil. They were um, descendants of, people who, of Jews who were expelled from Spain in 1492. So they were Sephardic. The German Jews who came in large numbers starting at the beginning of the century, around 1810, 1820, were, were more Ashkenazi. Um, there was a wave of German immigration starting in the early 1800s because of political unrest in Germany. This was the period after the Napoleonic Wars. There were crackdowns against dissent. Um, the, this, this would lead up to the revolutions of 1848. So large numbers of Germans, um, including large numbers of relatively large numbers of German Jews, about 40 to 50,000 total by um, by the middle of the century, about 10,000 of those living in New York City. Um, what what we consider the Lower East Side changes a lot over time. Um, at, its, at its height, the Jewish Lower East Side of around 1910 was considered as starting on on Second Avenue, where the Jewish where the Yiddish theaters were, uh, essentially the East Village of. Um, of, of, of Manhattan, what's now considered East Greenwich Village, all the ways down to the Brooklyn Bridge and just north of City Hall. Very large, expansive area. Um, back then, um, most of that was chopped up into a number of other neighborhoods. Um, the Five Points was obviously the very poor part. Um, the, the section right along the river was a, a Protestant, working-class neighborhood. Um, Boss Tweed was growing up there right around this time. Um, the Jewish section was around Delancey Street, about a four to five block stretch um, between Delancey and Rivington Street. Um, but it was chopped up among different ethnic groups, again, the, 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 the Irish being the largest, the Germans being the second largest. The founders, mm -hmm. the founders of B'nai B'rith moved at that time mm -hmm. to New York City. They came from Germany. Yes. Um, what, 
what, what were they doing? What mm-hmm. was their, what did they do for work? What was their uh, job? What was the economy like for the Jewish mm-hmm. community? Well, well the, the first Germ, the German Jews who came over and founded B'nai B'rath, mostly came over in this wave of, of German immigration around 1810, 1820, 1830. By the time they founded B'nai B'rath, most of these particular gentlemen had been living in New York for 10 or 20 years. So they had, they had time to develop some roots. They were craftsmen. There was a, 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 a goldsmith. There was a barber. There was a real estate salesman. There were, they were small shopkeepers um, in that neighborhood. Um, there were a couple of, um, of brewers. Um, Germans drank beer, and, and, and Jews were part of that German beer-making culture. Um, the, the technology of brewing at that time allowed you to make certain easily stored lagers that you could make in, in, in your kitchen or in a basement that could store for several weeks um, at a time before re- refrigeration. So this, this was part of the economy as well. Um, the, so they, they, were, they, weren't very, they weren't extremely poor. They weren't rich. They were, they were middle class craftsmen, um, tradesmen, small shopkeepers. And one, Aaron mm-hmm. Sinsheimer, yes. one of them owned a saloon. Yes, Aaron Sinsheimer um, opened a saloon um, sometime around this era. We don't know the exact date. It was in a, a, a three-story townhouse on Essex Street, an old, an old brick building. Um, he opened it on the ground floor. Um, like, like many others, there were literally dozens of small saloons like this during the time. And it was part of the culture of the city. It wasn't a unique German thing. It wasn't a unique Jewish thing. Um, at, at this time, there was no TV, no radio, no movies, um, no, no Internet, obviously. This is where people socialized. At the end of a hard day working, um, this is where you, you know, almost all men um, would come and meet and talk and socialize, talk about the world, talk about their problems. Um, it was a social center. Um, it was also a political center. Um, rising young politicians um, in New York would use saloons as their place to gather a group of like-minded people, form friendships, form alliances. Often the saloon back rooms were the original meeting places of of the political parties. Many of the future chieftains of Tammany Hall, um, future congressmen, started out as, as saloon keepers and then cemented those relationships into their political operation. So the, the fact that, that Sinsheimer's, um, as a saloon that was popular with Jewish people, Jewish men, um, would be the place where a political club was founded was very typical of the time. Um, the, 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 the particular group who founded the B'nai B'rith were um, generally associated with one particular synagogue, um, Anshe Chesed, which was relatively new, catered to German Jews. Um, with, within the Jewish community at the time, there was a lot of pulling and tugging and division, um, both, both religious and social. Um, Jews being Jews, they, they, were, they were arguing over religion. Um, they were, the, the Ashkenazi and the Sephardic were, 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 were at odds with each other. Um, each local um, part of Europe um, had its own congregation, its own practices. Um, at the time in America, Jewish practice was undergoing change. Um, Reform Judaism started in Europe, but it 
quickly took root in America because in America we have freedom to do what we want and and people experimented. There there were one of the leaders um, in New York, a man named Mordechai Noah, um, took the lead at one point in in um, giving a speech at a synagogue, um, supporting English language prayers and using um, musical instruments in a synagogue, which at the time um, was revolutionary. Um, arguments among Jews about religious practice back then um, resulted in lawsuits because feelings were so strong. Um, the the group in Sinti- Noah was no. a uh, he was a, a an early uh, kind of a proto-Zionist was he not yes. in terms of his uh, it, his uh, objective of of having a a Jewish homeland or a place yes. for Jews yeah a very interesting man a man, a man who doesn't get nearly the credit he deserves he um, Mordechai Noah was a was a Jewish man but he he was a diplomat he served in I believe the James Madison administration um, as as the American American consulate uh, in Tangiers in North Africa um, he came to New York. He founded a number of newspapers. He became active in politics. He was elected sheriff of New York City as part of the Tammany Hall operation, um, overcoming um, some anti-Semitism at the time. At the, when he ran for sheriff, there were protests saying that a Jewish person ought not to be in a position to hang a Christian, which as sheriff you'd have to do sometimes. Um, so that was raised, but he won the election anyways because Tammany knew how to count votes. Um, but uh, he he was the one who came up with the idea of purchasing an island in the Niagara River. Um, he named it Ararat um, to be a a place of refuge for Jews around the world, a Jewish homeland. Before that idea took root in Europe, um, it didn't get very far. It was hard. To, the logistics were very difficult, um, but it became one of the models for for 20th century Zionism. What uh, brought this particular group, mm-hmm. uh, the barber, the small shop owners, uh-huh. the, the, the original B'nai B'rith founders, they came to Sinchimer's Cafe. Uh-huh. Uh, they could have done something. They simply could have sat there and continued to talk politics or, mm-hmm. or business or whatever. What was it that impelled them uh, to decide to coalesce um, together uh, and to organize um, what became B'nai B'rith? Well, there, there were a couple of things. The, the, the atmosphere they were doing it, as I mentioned, was, was sharp division within the Jewish community, raising a lot of concerns whether the Jewish community was a community or whether it was just a, a number of splinter groups going their own way. These, these gentlemen were also very active in the Freemasons and the Odd Fellows, two very popular secular lodges at the time. And they thought that those organizations were a terrific model for how to, how to run a community, how to, how to set up a leadership group. Um, they met, they were based on friendship, they weren't based on religion, they were based on a, a, you know, dealing with the objective world. What they wanted to do was to create an organization that would deal with Jews as citizens as, and people. Um, one of the first things they did when they founded the group was to create a pension program for Jewish widows so that if a, a Jewish w- woman was, was left alone in the world, she would get a pension of some $30 and then some money to live off of, some money to raise, raise the children. Um, those kinds of, of um, practical um, re- reforms that they wanted to accomplish, and the synagogues and other Jewish groups weren't doing it. There's also a suggestion 
um, that a, a number of Jewish men tried to join the Odd Fellows and were blackballed. Now, this is a somewhat controversial point. Many of the Jewish founders of B'nai B'rith were members of the Odd Fellows group, and they specifically deny that this was based on anti-Semitism by that group. But still, there, there was an incident where some Jewish mem members were denied admission. And so that was one of the events that sparked them to think about creating kind of a, a, a safe place for Jews, you know, an all-Jewish club. They thought at one point of founding a Jewish lodge of the Odd Fellows, you know, just build it within the Odd Fellows organization and have an all-Jewish club. Um, but that seemed to defeat the idea of it being secular, because then you would have a religious test for membership. Um, so they decided to create their own new organization. They put a lot of time into it. They had a number of meetings to, to, to haggle over the charter and the membership rules and the rituals and, and how, how it would work. Um, but it, they came up with something that was based on you know, benevolence, friendship, um, secular ideas. Um, if you look at their minutes and at the charter, you don't see Torah, Talmud, um, re religion. Instead, you see um, Jewish people, um, Jewish camaraderie, Jewish needs, um, very much based on, on the Masonic um, and Oddfellow model. Now, as it turns out, mm -hmm. beyond the boundaries of, of Manhattan, um, it was German Jews mm -hmm. um, in the Midwest, mm -hmm. for example, also in the South, many of them who uh, once the founders, mm -hmm. uh, apparently once the word got out of what the founders were doing, mm -hmm. uh, the, um, the ball was picked up elsewhere. And so we see in places like Cincinnati and right. Louisville and elsewhere where there were strong uh, concentrations of, of German Jews, immigrants, uh, children of immigrants, mm -hmm. uh, the organization grew. So uh, we, we certainly pay uh, a great deal of, uh, of deference uh, to those founders as well, outside mm -hmm. New York City, um, who uh, did so much to build the organization. Yes, it was very popular. I mean, once, the, uh, once they created the first lodge, it only took a few years, as you say, for it to, to be replicated in, in cities across the country where there were Jewish populations. And they, it was attractive because not only was it a Jewish-based organization, where Jews could come together and as, as friends, as neighbors, as as a community, um, but it 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 had um, it had a certain mystique to it at the time. Um, it was a secret organization, very much like the Masons. It had its special rituals. Um, you had to go through several levels of, of membership originally until you knew what all the rules were. Um, it was um, you you couldn't blackball people the way that some of the other, you know, for instance, there was n if, m many Jewish organizations at the time would not allow converted Jews into their midst because they felt they hadn't they they weren't pure Jews. The the Benebrith never took that that viewpoint. They they were they, their doors were open to all comers within Judaism. Um, there there was no division between um, whether you were German, Russian, Hungarian, born in America, born abroad, whether you were religious or not religious, um, whether you practiced Reform or Orthodox or nothing at all. If you go down to Essex Street today. Mm -hmm. Um, we know the building's not there. Correct. Uh, and as I understand it, um, on the 150th anniversary mm -hmm. uh, of B'nai B'rith, it was 25 years ago, 
uh, when we were observing uh, that uh, anniversary. I know there was a, a plaque that was that was placed mm-hmm. uh, there, uh, but I think also the Bicentennial Commission of the City of New York also put uh, put a plaque. So what what do you see? What what's on the spot today? Um, as I understand it, on that very spot, yes, there's the plaque, but the, there's also a government office building. It's a, I believe it's the City of New York. Um, one of the city departments has a has an office building there. Well, that's. Um, I, I hope they realize the, the legacy, <laughs> the legacy that they're mm-hmm. uh, the land at least that they're that they're sitting on. Yeah. Uh, Ken, this is really uh, it's fascinating to hear our history, our Benebrith history, but also the history of Jews in America, mm-hmm. the history of of Jews in New York, which has the largest uh, Jewish population. Uh, and to uh, to pause and reflect uh, as we do on this 175th anniversary of B'nai B'rith. So we we thank you for the work that you've done in researching and and writing about this, and uh, uh, appreciate your coming by to tell the story today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you everyone for listening to our podcast. Please visit our website b'nai like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter. Subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about us. For my guest, Ken Ackerman, I'm Dan Mary Ashen. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. <laughs>